The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. We have with us today Gabriel Axel Montez, and he's going to introduce himself because what he's doing is very, very interesting stuff with neural axis and all the other things he's doing. Um, welcome, Gabriel, thanks for coming. Why don't you introduce yourself to our Different Brains audience properly? Thank you, Hacky. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, thanks for the warm introduction. So, yep, my name is Gabriel Axel Montez, and I'm a neuroscientist and educator, and I work with people helping them to understand their brain and how they function and how that influences their life in various ways and how we can effectuate change in various ways. So um, right now I'm completing my PhD, uh, which is based at the University of Newcastle in Australia. And before that, I did a master's degree in neurobiology. Before that, I did my bachelor degree in neurobiology and anthropology. And <clears throat> Along the way, I became interested in the mind, not only from the perspective of the third person objective, meaning like, what can you figure out about the brain in the laboratory? I also became interested in the brain from the perspective of introspection and the first person perspective, the I, the experience of consciousness um, as the ocean of experience. So I decided to go into that for basically the purposes of exploration, well-being, health, etc. And I turned my experience into a lab and an experiment. And that's how I am where I am today, which is weaving the first-person experience of the brain and the third-person experience of the brain. Now, is that what we're calling the fusion of neuroscience and self-cultivation practices? Correct. Yes. I refer to the general spectrum of mind-body practices that involve going inward and working with your mind and your body in a certain way. I refer to those generally speaking as uh, self-cultivation practices because you're cultivating like a gardener, the self. Tell us about neural axis. Sure. So neural axis is basically the, the umbrella term for everything that I, I do, from research to education, to working with people, to consulting um, on various things, including how to incorporate neuroscience and neuroscientific inspired thinking into a workflow, a process, a company's kind of culture, et cetera, to consulting an artificial intelligence-based projects and how that, um, how that can evolve with a fusion of self-cultivation and neuroscience. Neural axis was named that way because uh, basically it's a reference to the neural axis, the spinal axis of the body that connects the organs and the brain, etc. So it's kind of a catch-all term for everything I'm involved in, and it's kind of an evolving beast. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's a little bit overwhelming to someone like myself, even though I have an MD, I'm completely ignorant of this stuff. I like to think I'm not stupid, but I'm pretty ignorant of because it actually conceptually 
can actually get into the fusion, if you will, or the merger of artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and what's going on in our brain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's I view mind, body, and self-cultivation practices as the sort of internally generated technology, if you will. It's like an ancient or perennial technology, is better said. We're constantly editing our experience. That said, there have been people that have formally gone through systematic processes of editing and facilitating, enhancing their experience, manipulating it in various ways. So I view that as sort of a perennial technology that goes back as long as humans have been around, at least. And then I see things like virtual reality and AI as external technologies in the way that we typically think of technology today. So there's different ways of actually going in there and shifting the way we think, whether it's introspectively through first-person experience or through the technological means by going in there, either having a neural interface, a neural implant, whatever, that actually edits the brain and the experience, or having virtual reality, which basically works through manipulating the sensorium of experience such that the mind is affected in this very synchronized way. It's like having a, a puppeteer pulling the different puppet strings of your senses, sight, smell, taste, etc. Virtual reality is mostly starting now with sight, but eventually things will get more and more um, advanced where we have close to full immersion and in, in something where it feels like you're really there. And the brain has a tricky way of doing that too. You can, you can amplify one or two senses just enough to really convince your whole brain that you're actually somewhere. Even if, if you really think about one sense in particular, you can tell that you're not. So the brain has a very tricky multi-sensory mechanisms and by the way it integrates them that make things like virtual reality possible today, even though the technology is quite frankly still in its infancy. If our viewers and our different brains audience or people like myself say, boy, this is this is great stuff. I want to become his client. Who are your clients and what do they sign up for? And how do they know to contact you? Sure. So one of the things that I do is I work with people um, individually, um, depending on the, the kind of the nature of the need and the, the, the I wouldn't say the urgency, but you know, the, the nature of the problem in general or the concern. So I, because of the self-cultivation work I've done, um, I've become quite uh, perceptive of kind of subtle flows of the mind. And there are certain ways to work with people that can catch some ways of thinking earlier before they become full-blown problems. Or sometimes if there is a full-blown issue in their person's life that they can work backwards to kind of like the common denominators at the roots of their their emotional brain that uh, that can be shifted and that can therefore sort of change the way a person thinks. A lot of this work can be done just from a very secular point of view, just thinking about emotions, psychology, cognition, drives, subconscious messages that we received and we interact with. Could range from that sort of approach to also something that many people would consider more spiritual. It just depends on the languaging that a person likes to use. Um, it's not entirely necessary to talk in so-called spiritual terms. It's just about what works for a person. So 
to answer your question, I work with a lot of clients individually. Um, the easiest way to contact me is through my website, the contact form. And <clears throat> I also work with larger um, clients. So one, one example is um, a recent one that I've been working with called SingularityNet, which is a, a basically a blockchain artificial intelligence platform. So this was part of the wave of the whole cryptocurrency boom, and I work with them to develop the integration of how non, what I call non-ordinary consciousness interfaces with artificial intelligence and neuroscience to kind of start forecasting the future of artificial general intelligence and start creating some roadmaps to how to possibly get to building a better artificial intelligence based upon insights into the human mind, which are based in scientific literature of psychology and neuroscience, and also things that are ahead of the data, so to speak, which is basically um, ways of ways that the mind works that have not necessarily received a whole lot of scientific funding um, in the pipe in the in the academic institutional pipelines to basically know we know this for sure or we don't know this for sure, but something more in the realm of observations based upon practice that I've had with myself, with clients, with students over the years that give me some insight into how the mind works that I feel fairly confident in making recommendations or suggestions while also being fully aware that this is ahead of the data, meaning the science hasn't caught up with it yet, but from what I've seen, from what we have seen, this looks like a likely way to go. So I work with smaller clients, with bigger clients, coaching, whether it's executive coaching, life coaching, to kind of more organizational flows that align with how the brain works. Can you talk about some of the anatomical correlates that you've become aware of in the studies that have been going on, if there are any? First of all, I want to say that there is a um, there is a, in, some interesting philosophical implications that have been um, brought forth by scientists and philosophers about the locationism in the brain. So the way we view the brain is very highly conditioned upon the technology we use to investigate it and probe it. So we've already kind of in more in, in the frothy leading edge of the discipline of neuroscience, we've already kind of seen that, yes, there are certain areas of the brain that we want to say do this and this area does that. Um, but we've already seen um, over the past decade or two that there are neural circuitries that transcend, if you will, um, the, the discrete brain regions on a three-dimensional, you know, volumetric level. And it's a lot more complex. And yet we still like to talk about brain regions. And then there's, because it's useful, you know, and then there's also the ways that different brain regions connect and how they influence each other. So functional connectivity, and there's different ways of describing that, the way that they give feedback to each other and the kind of the, the bidirectional street, and then or whether they take a, a detour through another part of the brain before going there and what that part of the brain does to the signal, etc. So I only give you this as a precondition because a lot of these brain region localizationalist views um, what they mostly serve to do is to, to verify, oh, there is something going on with that phenomenon. That, that's why we study it. It also gives us a sense that we can grasp something that is, 
that is actually um, meteorically far more complex than we can even imagine as the brain is, as a complex system, is often compared to the level of complexity of the physical universe. So it's almost like having a microcosm in the brain of this macrocosm that we are a part of. So <clears throat> I always like to say that in general because um, the studies are shifting all the time. Someone says the amygdala is responsible for fear, and then we know, and then we learn that, and it's it, we could still say that even today. But we've also learned that there's different parts of the amygdala that respond to negative emotional stimuli in one way, or maybe it's not always about fear, but it's also about just um, emotional valence, the kind of emotional profile we give to something before it becomes outright fear. So things like that. And so, for example, one of the things that mindfulness meditation, which is the most common study because it's been able to be systematized in the form of MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, is the most popular. So it's been very clinically studied. And we can see that mindfulness meditation changes the structure of a meditator. First, we saw that meditators versus non-meditators had different brain structural differences. Then we saw that people going over a course of mindfulness-based stress reduction program over the course of eight weeks could actually change their brain. And then now we've seen that a short bit of meditation, we're talking just like hours to, you know, four to 48 hours, different, a few different studies here show that you can change your brain through meditation. So a lot of these studies are, are have been done. Sarah Lazar at Harvard University is one of the most popular. Uh, Britta Holtzell is also, uh, who was part of her lab as well, is now living in Europe, also a famous researcher in this area. So we have structural changes in the brain. Now, what kinds of structural changes? Different studies, various have shown that the amygdala, the way it responds to Emotional stimuli changes as a result of these awareness techniques like mindfulness-based stress reduction, etc. There's also different forms of meditation that affect different parts of the brain differently. For example, you have non-dual meditation. So non-dual contemplation is considered um, one of the simplest and most challenging uh, forms of, of cultivation, you could say, or attainments, achievements, states. It's not really a state. It's just awareness of reality, the non-dual nature of reality. So there's the practice in different traditions. In Tibetan tradition, it's called Dzogchen. And this particular tradition affects an area of the brain called the precuneus. So different types of meditation affect different parts of the brain. Also, the caudate putamen areas of the brain, which are functionally part of the limbic system, are also linked to intuitive perception abilities. So if you're talking about simple mindfulness, non-dual meditation, intuitive capabilities, and then you have things like mantra meditations where you're repeating a sound over and over like om and letting that resonate in your body and your mind and your emotional systems. All these things have varied effects. No one has even begun to study the body yet and the physiology. 
Now, different types of meditations, different types of brain regions, different types of brain circuits. Then you have the process of basically meditating. So when you start doing a practice, such as meditation or whatever, where you have to focus, there's the initial attempt to focus, noticing what's going on, the attempt to focus, focusing, getting distracted, and then realizing you're distracted, and then shifting back into awareness. That has its own little sort of uh, roulette wheel of, of brain states that, of brain regions that are activated. So normally, deciding to focus involves your prefrontal regions and your maintenance of focus involves prefrontal activation, excuse me, activation of focus, but then maintaining it brings online, not mutually exclusively, but brings online the striatum, which is part of the limbic system, which helps us sustain the attention on what is, what you've, the state you've gotten into. And then at some point you'll get distracted and then you use your prefrontal cortex again to pull you back into where you want to go. So, for example, in meditation, the breath is often used as a point of focus. You can also use a visual aid or certain sounds as points of focus, and the effects will be all very slightly different. So, I'll pause there. There's, there's much, much, much more to, to, to talk about and, and explicate with regards to examples of how the brain is affected. But the brain regions are important to anchor people's understanding in neuroscience. And then from there, you have to go into, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And then that gets more into psychology and people's intuition and emotions, et cetera. So. That was a fantastic journey you just took us on. That was wonderful. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it was specific enough. No, it was. It was, it, was, uh, it, it was fabulous. Um, what is the website that our audience can go to? What is your website to learn more? Because I'm sure everyone's going to want to know more about what you're doing here. Yeah, sure, no problem. So um, my website is gabrielaxel.com, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-A-X-E-L.com. I also have another domain, which is currently linked to that one, neuralaxis.org, but gabrielaxel.com is fine. And, um, yeah, the website is something that's a work in progress. I've been mostly focused on finishing my doctorate for the past few years. So what you'll see most maintained on my website is my academic page, which describes my academic interests, directions, goals, grants, publications, etc. So that's kind of the most up-to-date stuff. Um, and part of what I'm going to do with my PhD work is deliver this framework that I mentioned earlier kind of explicate that in the form of something formal, like a course and an online course. I also teach other things um, in the realm of purely self-cultivation, uh, neurophysiological um, integration processes that deal with people's subjective experience, but that have effects on their neurophysiology and neuroendocrine systems for basically to use a metaphor, rewiring the nervous system in a way that um, facilitates more expansive states of being and makes um, a lot of aspects of life and further self-cultivation much more easy, uh, much easier, more integrated and fruitful. 
So that's based on a, a few different systems. It's a syncretic system, uh, but it's a general uh, physio neurophysiological uh, integration process course. So that's kind of what I do on the one hand, and then there's my PhD work on the other hand. That's the framework I mentioned earlier. So I have these two things that I feel are the, the first tools that um, empower people the most I have found. And I really like to see people um, get off to a start in their life that makes sense for where they are, for their walk of life, and something that's quite broad enough where it can apply to different people. So you can go to my website, you can contact me, you can refer to you know, self-cultivation or the neuroscience framework and ask me a question um, and, and that's, that's how we can begin. And from there, I basically maintain in contact with people until the course is ready to come out. So I expect to see that in the near future, very near future. Talk for a bit about strong social relationships and the lack thereof. Yes. The way I see it, a lot of the mental illness crises that are present in our modern world are in part caused by the separation of people into various uh, real property allotments, really. Humans evolved in village settings with a relatively small number of people that could all, you're, you're growing up as a kid, exposed to similar faces all the time, and you form deep relationships, people help each other. It's not, it doesn't work in the same way our current society works in terms of exchange economically. I'm not saying we should go back to a village mentality at all. What I'm saying is that the human, the human mind evolved in that context to a far larger degree than it evolved in the current fast-changing context that we have today. So the separation of people leaves people feeling alone and isolated. There is a big overlap, by the way, between the neural pathways that are responsible for social connection and interaction and the pathways for introspective faculties such as meditation. Reflecting upon ourselves is very much related to the way we can reflect about other people. So if we are missing social interaction on a large scale, what is that doing to our ability to understand ourselves? And then it's like a, a loop. It just keeps going and spiraling. So social connections to me are something that I, I want to say something personal is social connection to me, I, I was, I've always enjoyed social connection, but I leaned much more to being introverted. But at some point I realized that part of my personal fulfillment in this life is about relating to other people, helping other people, and feeling connected. That's just part of how the brain works. It's not even like a, yes, of course, for me, there's something about it that feels like a, like a, just a, a fuzzier feeling that I just have to do it, you know, not logical. But if you want to look at it logically, the human brain is wired for social connection. We are social animals and that is part of healthy brain function. If you don't have enough of that, you're risking something happening to you. I've seen a lot of loneliness, 
coinciding with dementia and Alzheimer's. I don't know the statistics. I'm sorry. But I think it's something to watch out for. And I think we need to be careful that we don't spend too much time within four walls, whether that is at work or at home. And even with the same people over and over, a small number of people, just our spouse. Some of us may have enough wherewithal to just be fine with that because we're healthy on other levels emotionally. But in such a, in a world where we are bombarded constantly with experiments of information, chemicals, media, etc., we have so many variants, uh, variables that, that you want to maximize your chances of success, you know, value social interaction as a pillar of your life. That's my, my response. Yeah. What is the biggest single thing you can tell our audience of advice to get from you? What's the biggest single thing you can tell our audience? You have the power to direct your experience. With the proper tools, you can direct your life in the way that aligns with your deeper desires. It will involve some reflection and awareness of what is adjacently possible to you. But with the right set of tools and the right intention and belief in yourself, you can accomplish things that you would never dream are possible of accomplishing. Very well said. Gabriel Axel Montes from all the way in Australia. It's been such an honor and a pleasure to have you here at differentbrains.org on another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hacky, and thank you to everyone who, who listened, and I'm, I'm happy to be in touch as we did. Thank of different you so brains, much. Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.